morning, Miss Yeo. The reading today is from Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, if you have children, kids, ages uh, all the way up to eighth grade, and you'd like to send them to Missio Kids, you are welcome to right now. They will come back with us uh, for the remainder of our worship service to do communion together. If you have kids and they'd like to participate in Missio Kids, you can send them right now. And as they go, would you pray with me one more time as we get into today's topic? Spirit of the living God, we gather acknowledging your presence, but often unaware. Help us to be aware. As we talk about you and as we talk about the work of you in the world, I feel like we are stepping into very deep waters where language comes undone and our understanding reaches its limits. And so today, Spirit, as we talk about you, as we explore your work throughout the whole biblical story, would you give us new words to say? Would you give us new expressions of your work? And would you press on the boundaries and barriers and limitations of our understanding? Saturate our imagination in you so that we would be a people of the Spirit who live and move and find our very being in your being. Got to take this message, the words that I offer, and do what you do. Make them holy. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. It is so good to have you. 
My name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here. If you're new, it's good to have you with us. Uh, Last week, we started a brand new series entitled The Forgotten God. And throughout this series, what we're doing and what we're endeavoring to do is spend some time focused on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Last week was Pentecost, where we celebrate and commemorate and remember the arrival of the Spirit. And so we want to use this season of Pentecost to tell the story of the Spirit and to enter in ourselves and talk about what is Spirit doing in the world? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to believe that because of the Spirit we are called witnesses of God's work? And I'm really excited about this series. I said this last week. I'm very excited about the work that we're doing in this series, excited about the conversations that we are having. I think in some ways, this is one of the most important conversations we'll have this year. And yet, I also feel pretty nervous to talk about spirit uh, for a couple of weeks. I don't know if you have any experience talking about spirit, but it can get weird very quickly. Conversations about spirit often dissolve into very strange language and strange conversations, and our understanding of spirit is diverse and contested. If you were to pick up five books by prominent authors on the spirit, you would probably find five quite different views of spirit in those books, all the way from the spirit is living and moving and acting in the same way as we see throughout the book of Acts to know there's some new age in which we live today and the Spirit is doing something wildly different or not at all from what was happening in the book of Acts. And so as we talk about Spirit, we just find ourselves in strange theological landscape. Spirit work is hard to name and describe. The language for Spirit throughout Scripture is pneuma and ruach, which means wind and breath. And the work of spirit is often described as landing, alighting, or filling. And those are beautiful descriptions, but they are not that helpful for getting our minds, ideas, or lives around what spirit is doing in the world. And so as we talk about spirit, we just find ourselves in a world of abstractions and ethereal ideas, and it can be hard to get concrete. So it makes talking about spirit difficult and challenging, and the different ideas about spirit make talking about spirit difficult and challenging. But I think the thing that makes talking about spirit maybe hardest of all, not just our language, not just our different ideas, but I think the thing that makes talking about spirit the most difficult for us is that we don't have an imagination for what life with spirit looks like. I know that's not very concrete to say, so you're like, thank you for that idea. But here's what I mean by that. I last week compared it to playing baseball. I think a lot of us, when it comes to spirit, it's like we have watched a game of baseball before. We've seen it played. Maybe we understand the basic rules of baseball, but we ourselves have never swung a bat before. And we ourselves have never lifted our mitt to catch a fly ball in the air. And so though we know the rules of baseball and we have some good ideas about how baseball is played and maybe we can decide some of the differences between baseball and other sports, we don't have the muscle memory of playing baseball. We don't have the natural instincts of playing baseball. We don't have the training that makes it so when we go onto the field, we know what to do with ourselves. We have abstract ideas, but no lived reality. 
no imagination for what a life with spirit can look like. So our goal throughout this series and throughout these conversations, it is to talk about spirit. It's to identify some good theology and good beliefs about spirit. Yes, but I would say the primary goal of our time together throughout the series is to grow our imagination for spirit. To develop some muscle memory, some impulses, some instincts, so that we see the world and we look through and by and expecting the spirit. There's a quote by a theologian named Benjamin Connor, who I think says this very, very well. He describes a spirit imagination this way. He says, spirit imagination refers to a way of understanding God, self, and world that is inspired by spirit. It is a way of participating in the fields of force, if that's not abstract, generated by the spirit's presence and activity that acknowledge God's active, redemptive work in the world by the Holy Spirit. It's about acknowledging that God is at work in the world by the Holy Spirit and seeking creative ways to join it. The community expects to find the Spirit at work. Maybe that's the best way of describing what a spirit imagination is. It is an expectation that we would find Spirit at work in the world that we might join Spirit's work in the world and begin to lift up our mitt or swing our bat to continue using that metaphor to live our life within the way of the Spirit. Now to do that, to help us develop a Spirit imagination, what we've been doing so far is telling Spirit stories, or what you could call Holy Ghost stories. And these are stories in which we see the Spirit working. So last week, we started in the book of Acts, and we looked at the Pentecost moment of Acts chapter 2, in which the Spirit descends on the gathered disciples and disrupts their understanding of kingdom by giving them languages that they would never want to speak. And then we looked at Acts chapter 10, in which Peter is led into an encounter with his enemy Cornelius the centurion. And then we looked at Acts chapter 15, in which the Spirit helps the church imagine, this is the language of the text used, imagine how big and wild the kingdom might be. And today we're going to continue that same kind of work. I'm going to tell some Spirit stories, but we're going to go all throughout the biblical narrative today. There's a couple of reasons for that. I want us to see, first and foremost, that Spirit is at work throughout all of Scripture. It's pretty easy to read only through the lens of spirit in the New Testament. But what we see throughout our whole Bible is that spirit is at work. And so we're going to see the spirit at work in the Old Testament all the way through to the book of Revelation. And as we see the spirit at work in these stories, we're going to see the spirit is God at work in the world. Participating, acting, and moving with God. And very specifically, this is the big idea of today is that we will see the Spirit is the agent of flourishing in the world. The one who generates new life in our lives, our world, and everywhere in between. The big idea of today, and that we will see through these stories, is that the Spirit is the agent of flourishing, who generates new life in our lives, our world, and everywhere in between. Now, Scripture often talks about the Spirit as the agent or giver of life. Jesus says the Spirit gives life in John chapter 6. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3.16, that the Spirit gives 
life. And one of my favorite moments in Romans 8 verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, the same Spirit who resurrected Jesus now lives in you and gives life to your body. We'll look at a few more stories, but that idea becomes so captivating to the early church that it makes its way into our art, our liturgy, and our language. And I wanted to show you a picture before we jump into stories of a very famous icon. This is an icon by the artist Andrei Rublev, and it's an image of the Trinity, God as community. And there's so many things about this image that are interesting and fascinating. I've used it before. We have our own sort of version of it on the wall over there in modern hipster way. And you have three figures in this image. All of them look very similar, and that's intentional. They all have similar features because God is a community of oneness. And yet, at the same time, there is features that are quite distinct. On the left-hand side, you have the figure of the Father. You notice that both his arms are clothed. In the middle, you have the image of the Son, whose right arm is unclothed, because uh, early theology said that the Son was the right hand of the Father. And then on the far right side, our focus for today, you have the figure of the Spirit. Looks just like the other members of the Trinity, but their left hand is unclothed to show that they are the left hand of the Father. And the thing that I want you to notice most today is the color of their garment is green. And the Holy Spirit often becomes associated with the color green. In the Western church, uh, liturgical seasons often have colors that are associated with them. And Pentecost for Western churches is often indicated by red to indicate the tongues of fire that lands on the disciples' head. But in Eastern traditions, Orthodox traditions, it is green to indicate that the Spirit is an agent of life and regeneration and renewal, the same kind of color that you see depicted on the Spirit here and the same kind of color that we have draped over the cross in the corner, a color to indicate that the Spirit is about life. Around the same time as this art was being made, a woman named uh, Hildegrad of Bingen, which is a mouthful to say, Hildegrad of Bingen described the Spirit as the greening force of all things. And I love that language, the greening force of all things, the agent of renewal, of regeneration, and of creation. And what these images and what these colors communicate to us, and the reason that I wanted to talk about them, is that the Spirit is the agent of life, but not just any life. The early church's understanding of the Spirit is that the Spirit is the one who is life overflowing and who life is verdant and green and lush and flourishing. The one who runs over dry ground and makes them grow. The one who hovers over the waters and initiates creation. The one who breathes over a teenager's womb and Messiah life begins. These images, these pictures, these colors are all about helping us gain an imagination for an agent of not just life, of not just initiating life, but flourishing life, overflowing life, green and fecund life. This year, the Spirit is the agent of flourishing life. 
Now, the first story that really helps us capture this idea in the text comes as the very first story in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And it's just a very short passage that sets the stage for the entire Bible. But it's the first moment that we get to see the Spirit as the agent of life and flourishing in the world. This is how Genesis 1, verse 1 through 2 begins. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was there, hovering over the waters. It was very easy for us to get distracted when reading Genesis 1 and 2 because we very quickly, in my experience, make this text about some kind of debate about how the world came into being, a debate about creation versus evolution. But in the ancient world, no ancient person is having a conversation with Darwin. They're having a different set of conversations about the nature of the world and a different set of questions about reality. They are not debating our modern science. They're debating ancient belief systems. And the question that the ancients are asking specifically as they read this text is, who created the world? There's no doubt in an ancient person's mind that the world was created. The thing that they want to know is who created the world. And was that person good and benevolent and abundant? Who created the world and what did they create? Is it a good place? Is it a home in which we are welcome? And as we read the Genesis 1 passage, that is exactly the goal the author has in addressing. It is to introduce us to the creator and the creation. And what we learn in this very short moment is that in the beginning was God, And God created the heavens and the earth. But then it says this strange thing, the earth was formless and empty. And that's a very strange phrase. Us as modern people, we might think of like a primordial ooze that's over the surface of the earth. But most likely what the ancients were thinking about is wilderness. The Hebrew phrase in this text is tohu vavohu and is often translated desert, empty landscape something that isn't primed for human flourishing. And so the picture that is created in Genesis 1 verse 1 is that in the beginning God creates the heavens, the earth, what's up there, what's down here. But what is down here? It's a wilderness, a desert, a landscape, something that is not primed for human flourishing. And that is very bad news if you're an agrarian people group looking for a homeland, looking for a place to live. But then it says this, but the Spirit was there, hovering over the surface of the waters. That's all that we learn about the Spirit in this moment. But the Hebrew peoples take that in a large way. And later in the Bible, the psalmist will write this, Psalm 104, verse 30, when you send your Spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. The Hebrew people, as they hear this moment, the Spirit is hovering over the surface of the waters. They know that to be good news, that a source of life and creativity and creation is now hovering over this barren landscape. Bible scholar Amos Young has this beautiful quote saying this, The intimate presence of the Spirit in this moment kickstarts the cosmos. 
The movement of God's Spirit catalyzes and participates in the formation of creation that fills in and overcomes the void. It is the Spirit's elemental stirrings in this respect that induce the world into its being. Right at the very beginning of our Bible in Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit at work. We see that the Spirit is God of creation, a part of the triune community, and is as a part of that triune community exercising their creative power, brooding over the waters and inducing it into being. This picture is then reinforced for us in Genesis chapter 2 in a much more intimate picture of creation. In Genesis 2 verse 7, we get a snapshot of not the cosmic creation story, but instead a creation story of humans. Of how humans come into existence. And this is what the text says. It says, Then the Lord God formed humans from the dust of the ground and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, and humans became living beings. Now it's interesting that we translate breath here as breath because it is the Hebrew word Ruah, which just moments before is used to describe spirit. That God's spirit enters humanity and makes them living beings. What we see is the intimate presence of the Creator entering into creation, extending God's very life to us and the world. It's the very first picture of the spirit we get, hovering over the waters, kick-starting creation. And we see lots of other pictures of the spirit throughout Scripture. After this moment, we see the spirit show up again in Genesis chapter 8 as the floodwaters begin to recede from Noah's story. The spirit is there, hovering over the surface of the waters. Again, we see the spirit show up in the Exodus narrative as the people are led out of Egypt. The spirit shows up at the Red Sea and parts the waters and leads Israel into a new land. But the moment that I want to skip to comes thousands of years later, and is the text that Rhea read for us this morning. And in this moment, we have a very different kind of image than the one that is created in Genesis chapter 1. In this moment, in Ezekiel 37, the people of Israel have been led into exile in the land of Babylon. Their kingdom has been destroyed. Their nation has been plundered. The temple, which was like the source of life for Israel, has been upended. And they find themselves in a foreign land, captive and enslaved by Babylon. And the prophet Ezekiel spends a lot of the book lamenting that they are in this new foreign land, weeping by the rivers of Babylon because of Israel's destruction. And as Ezekiel is in this foreign land, this undone world, he receives a vision. And the Spirit leads Ezekiel into a valley. And it's this really visceral image. The Spirit leads Ezekiel into a valley that is said to be full of dry bones. Told you this was going to be a ghost story. And this is what Ezekiel says, verse 2 of chapter 37. It says, The Spirit led me back and forth amongst these dry bones. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were, in case you were curious, very dry. And God asked me, human one or son of man, 
can these bones live? It's a question of can what has been unmade be made? Can life come again? Can a people who have been destroyed and ruined and found themselves in exile, can they discover flourishing once again? Can a land that has had its culture stripped of it, can a people whose hope has been undone, can they find life again? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel the prophet, ever honest, says, I don't know. I don't know if these bones can live. He says, only you know that, sovereign Lord. So then God says to Ezekiel, that's what the text says, Then he said to me, prophesy to these dry bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and I will cover you with skin and I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. It's a strange request in some ways to be in a valley of dry bones and told to talk to the dead. But Ezekiel does it. He prophesies to these dry bones and the text says that exactly what God said would happen begins to happen. The bones reform, tendons regrow and the bodies come to life. And then God tells Ezekiel why he's seen this, why he has received this vision. He says, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. And they say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off Therefore, prophesy to the people. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from there. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Like the Genesis text, it's another beautiful and yet strange moment in which we see the Spirit working. Israel's life has been undone by trauma and disaster and a conquering nation. Their hope has been cut off, but the Spirit of creation is there. This time not hovering over the surface of the waters, but moving through a dry valley covered in bones. And wherever we see the Spirit move, wherever we see the Spirit step, we see life begin to take hold. In the creation story, it's the cosmos and the world. And in Ezekiel 7:37, the Spirit induces back to life an entire people group. Because the Spirit is the agent of flourishing, and everywhere Spirit goes, they generate new life in our lives, our world and everywhere in between. Now the third story that I want to show you comes in the New Testament, but looks very, very similar to these first two, but is even more intimate. Each one of these stories gives us more intimate pictures of the Spirit's work. This one comes in Luke chapter 1. If you remember your Bible, or just the Gospels, you might have a sense of what's happening in this moment. Luke chapter 1 is the birth story of Jesus. 
And the text says that an angel comes to a young girl named Mary and tells her that she is going to become pregnant with the Messiah. And her very logical question is, um, how? Not married yet. How am I going to become pregnant with this God baby? And the angel says to Mary in verse 34, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. This is one of those moments for me, like the other moments that we've looked at with the Spirit, where I feel like our language, our understanding is a bit limited and provisional. What's happening in this moment is hard to describe. But what we see is the Spirit, the breath of God, in the same way as creation and in the same way as over the people of Israel in Ezekiel 37 fills Mary with new life. But it's not just any life. This time it is God's very own life. In this moment, the Spirit creates new life by extending themselves into creation. Extending God's very presence, God's very self into the world around them. The same way that Spirit entered humans, extending God's very life to us here, God enters the world through the activity of the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent of creation and also the agent of God's presence. Extending God's very self into the world. The theologian Stanley Hauerwas has this very succinct way of saying it. He says, The Holy Spirit takes up space resting on bodies. So the Holy Spirit is the typical continuing way in which Trinity, God's community, is made known in time. In the life of Mary and in the person of Jesus, Spirit enters creation and makes God known by extending God's presence to us. Each of these stories give us a little different picture of how Spirit creates, how Spirit brings in flourishing. And I want to look at one final one. This one comes in the very end of your Bible, Revelations 22. Now this passage that I'm going to read to you is actually very short, so I'm going to read a little bit of an extended chunk of it. And in Revelations 22, the first part of the chapter, we see the hope of the world being restored. It's an image of new creation. All the things that we've just talked about, all the things the Spirit is doing is now overflowing in the world. A new city is emerging out of heaven. Earth is renewed. Sins are forgiven. Hearts are healed. Evil overthrown. Jesus sits on the throne and peace is reigning. That's the picture in Revelations 22. And it is a verdant and flourishing description and image. This is the way the text goes in verse 1. It says this, and I don't think I put it on the screen, just in case. Then the angel showed John the apostle, the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. And it was flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood trees of life bearing crops of fruit, yielding new fruit every month. These were the leaves of the trees for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on them. There will be more, no more night. 
And there is no need of light of a lamp because the Lord will be their light and will reign forever and ever. It's this beautiful picture, again, of a verdant world healed of sin, overflowing with life. This is the big hope of the story of Scripture, that it's all moving towards. But right at the end of the chapter, as we're coming to the very close of the book of Revelation, we get this verse in 17. Right at the end, it says this, And the Spirit and the bride, who is the church, says, Come. And let the one who says, Come, say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty arrive. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of water arrive. I love this moment in the same way that I love what's happening in Genesis 1 or Ezekiel 37 or over Mary's life because just like in the beginning, the Spirit is here ushering in some new creation. One of my mentors is a theologian named Alan Roxborough and he says the Spirit is like a midwife ushering in and inducing new creation. And I think that is exactly what is happening in Revelations 22. You can see Spirit and the bride as this new world come into being, and the Spirit has prepared the landscape, seeded the world with new life, and is now ushering something new into being. Midwifing God's purpose, God's kingdom into the world around us calling and inducing new life into being. In each moment of the Spirit's work, we see that same kind of midwifing and inducing into being. In Genesis 1, it's the whole world. In Ezekiel 37, it is the new life in the people of God. In Luke 1, it's God's very self. And in Revelations 22, it is a new creation in which humans and God dwell together. Mr. in each of these stories, what we see is that the Spirit is the agent of creation, and everywhere Spirit goes, new life is generated and induced into being in you, in me, and everywhere in between. The question for us is, what do we do with that story? And what do we do with all of these stories that tell us about the Spirit as the agent of life? One thing on one hand, it should lead to a sense of wonder at the mystery of God that is unfolding all around us. We read from Psalm 104, verse 30, that says, You send your spirit and they are created and it renews the face of the earth. The rest of that text is about the wonder at being in God's world. about the goodness that is revealed to us as we step foot into God's creation. We could call this worship. So this story of the Spirit around us and at work in this world should lead us to worship. We'll talk about this in the weeks to come, but Paul says in Galatians 5 that we should walk in step with the Spirit. And as we walk in step with the Spirit, we will produce the fruit of the Spirit which is continuing that flourishing, lush, verdant image of the Spirit's work, but not just outside of us, not just around us, not just in the communities of our lives, but now in us. That as we walk in step with the Spirit, the flourishing of God's life becomes a reality in the midst of us. 
So it should lead us to worship and it should lead us to trust that the Spirit is at work in us, bringing us into the life that God has intended. And as it leads us to trust, I think it should lead us to hope in the Spirit's work. And to recognize that we are far more desperate for the Spirit to intervene in our lives than I think our imaginations have often allowed us to believe. That there is something in us and in our world that desperately needs the Spirit's arrival. That there is a healing work in our own life, a new creation work in our own life, a new creation work in the world around us that desperately needs the Spirit to arrive to bring life and flourishing to all those around us. This is why the early church has been praying for a long time. Come, Holy Spirit. We are in need of your new creation work. Fill our lives, fill our communities, fill the world around us because we are in need of your flourishing work. So, Miss you, in a moment, I'm going to pray that over us. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come into this space and into our lives, and then we're going to gather at this table. And we gather at this table every single week, and the reason we do is to remember the new creation that God has begun. That in God and in Christ's sacrifice, his body was broken, his blood was spilt, but as Paul says in Romans 8, 11, that it did not remain that way because the Spirit brought Christ to life. And so as we come to the table and we break the bread and we take the cup, our hope is that we have died with Christ, but that we also live because of Christ through the power of the Spirit, that we have been invited into resurrection, new creation life, to experience the flourishing of the Spirit. So in a moment, Missy, we'll continue to worship and I will invite you to the table. And as you do, would you arrive and would you come to this place with the invitation of the Spirit in your heart to experience the resurrection, renewing, recreating life in and through the Spirit. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this moment, this time together to look at your story and to look at the work of the Spirit. As I prayed at the beginning, I feel like we have found ourselves in a place that is beyond my capacities, beyond my understanding, that challenges my faith and my, under, my belief and my imagination. Mr. Spirit, today would you teach us as you promised? Would you guide us into all truth? And as we gather at the table and as we sing and then as we leave this place, would we begin to experience the flourishing recreating life that you promised us. Holy Spirit, would you come again? Wherever you are, we see life. So come, Spirit, and recreate us. Renew the face of the earth and fill us with your presence. And Spirit, would you come to this place? Would you meet us at this table? Would you take the bread and the wine that are bread and wine and make them into body? And would you take our bodies and our lives and make them into yours?
We pray this in your name. Amen.